Welcome to Write Now with Scrivener, where writers talk about how they work, how they develop their ideas, and how they use Scrivener, the app built for long-form writing projects. I'm your host, Kirk McElhern, author of Take Control of Scrivener. Today, I'm happy to welcome Damon Young. Damon is a philosopher and an author of fiction, nonfiction, and children's books. Damon, thank you for joining me. My pleasure. Damon is in Australia, and this is the first time we've had an Australian guest. Now, you're a philosopher, and I'm thinking, when someone says a philosopher, I think of like Socrates and Plato and Confucius and Lao Tzu and Sartre and Camus and... How does one become a philosopher? Is there a club you join or something secret handshake? Yeah, there is an Illuminati, and we, we all swap. We just we don't even swap handshakes because that's too obvious. Too we dangerous. Just sly glances across the room. Yeah. Um, no, I mean I, I've uh, done a um, degree in philosophy, a PhD. Um, I've written philosophy for for an academic audience, but um, I wanted to write to more than you know, five people across the world. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I started writing for a general audience, um, books and essays and opinion pieces and so on. But, yeah, the, the, the training of the philosopher is typically you, you go to uni. Having said that, uh, Socrates didn't go to uni. Um, <laughs> he just talked to a lot of people. Philosophy means the love of wisdom. Had you always wanted to be a philosopher or did you want to be like a, I don't know, a mountain climber and then you switched to philosophy? They're similar disciplines, aren't they? <laughs> You're always facing the void. Um, look, from my first philosophy class in my first year um, of university, I knew it was what I wanted to do because the, their capacity to stop, to put a pause on things, and instead of just constantly charging ahead with the things that you know you're supposed to do, it stopped and said, wait, hey, no, wait a minute, what are you doing? What is that? What are you saying? Um, and that was an attitude that at high school, at least, got me in trouble. But at university, I was rewarded for it. I never had the opportunity to study philosophy when I was in school. I didn't do a normal university career. But I lived in France for a long time, and I raised a son there. And in France, they do one year where they study philosophy in lycée, but it's just the one year. And it seems like this is something that you should be getting a little of every year as you go along. I think what's great about the French system is that you have to encounter it. So one of the problems with uh, philosophy's reputation in the English-speaking world is a lot of people just don't know what it is. Um, they think it's psychotherapy or they think it's purely, purely about kind of um, consoling life lessons or Instagram quotes with, with pictures of Plato <laughs> or, or um, Benjamin Franklin or whoever is being misattributed today. Um, whereas at least in France, they encounter philosophy. They have a sense of what it is. And at least then they're in a position to say, oh, hell no. Or, oh, yeah, I like this. So what is philosophy? How do you define it? It does mean love of wisdom, but that's not really what it is. No, that's that's its name. Um, and it's astonishing, actually, that it still has its name. But um, it can be a love of wisdom in some people. It can be a sense that you're impelled by a desire to to, to be wise. But I think the best general description of philosophy that I can think of is that it's a critic of abstractions. I'm, I'm stealing from Alfred North Whitehead there. So basically the idea is that most of the time we have these ideas of the world, of ourselves, of one another, and they're abstractions. They're not the world. They're our pictures of the world that we have gathered together in our experience and we even use them. We use them to understand ourselves in the world. 
And philosophy comes along and says, you know, that's an abstraction, right? You know, that's not actually the world. That's just how you represent it to yourself. Is it true? Is it complete? Does it fit together? Is it harmonious? How is all this working together? So a philosopher is someone who's always trying to say, I know you think you know that, but do you actually know that? What do you mean by knowing that? And that kind of thing. And look, that's kind of annoying. It's an annoying thing to do to someone. <laughs> um, but it's valuable because we do it to ourselves too, hopefully. Yeah, but we don't do it in a sort of formal way. We just maybe ask a couple of questions and we try and figure out what 42 means, and that's about it. Yeah. There's a, a process to go through to get to the stage where philosophy is making sense, right? Yeah, that's right. And look, partly that is a familiarity with quest questions and answers. So um, a lot of the time as a philosopher, you've seen that question before. Oh, wait a minute. You know, so-and-so asked that in the in the you know, fourth century BC. And then you're familiar with all the various answers to it and then the answers to those. So in short, you've seen that argument before. And so you see a lot of arguments now and you say, well, okay, well, yeah, we know the problems with that because they've already been brought up. Um, and we know the problems with that because so-and-so made that mistake literally a thousand years ago. Um, so at the very least, you, you walk into a debate, an argument, a spat saying, I have some sense of what's going on here. Here are the possible mistakes. Is there an overlap these days between neuroscience and philosophy that are both trying to explain that abstraction in the world? Yes. Um, philosophy ought to be informed by the sciences. We ought to at the least be challenged by some of their findings. Um, and neuroscience... Certainly some of the findings from neuroscience, for example, saying, you know, the, the, when you think that you're thinking this at this speed, your brain is actually doing something else at another speed and you're not even aware of what your brain is doing. Um, that's a really important philosophical insight that, you know, someone like Nietzsche might have suggested. He said that the brain, you know, or our body, sorry, is, is, a, is a giant wisdom. And so much of what our body's doing, we're not even aware of it. Um, neuroscience is constantly telling us things like that about ourselves. But there's also a danger that our kind of first person experience of the world uh, is not captured by neuroscience. And, and, a, and, a, and a neuroscientist, or at least the um, media version of their research, which is all, you know, all hype and not science, becomes we found all hype and not science yeah. uh, in, in the in the media releases yeah so by the time something by the time something is sent to the press processed by the press and then turned into a tweet it becomes they found virtue it's in this part of the brain yeah um <laughs> And it's, it's really important that we, that we remember that there is a first-person aspect to our existence that isn't captured by a third-person bit of science, and that that first-person aspect, you know, my experience of myself in the world, is a fact. It's no less real. It's not made up. It's not invented. It exists, and you can't necessarily take that into account, um, you know, using a scanner in a lab. Yeah. Uh, you're reminding me of what's that paper? What's it like to be a bat? What is it like to be a bat? Yeah. Yeah. So that's talking about qualia, about our impressions of the world. Do philosophers work with neuroscientists to try and solve those questions? Or are you in different parts of the university campus and you don't speak? 
uh, a bit of A and a bit of B. So certainly, um, you know, philosophers and neuroscientists are in different parts of the academy uh, with, you know, different funding, different agendas. But um, we absolutely work together. You know, obviously, some philosophers are in a completely different area altogether. They're, they're not working with those experts. They might be working with different experts. Sometimes they're working all alone on their problems. Yeah. Um, but look, it's it's certainly heartening when I see it. Um, I like it when when philosophers are open to the sciences, and I like it when scientists are open to the idea that philosophy still has something to say, as opposed to being rendered completely redundant by a study that was done in, say, 1964. Yeah. And then, of course, you have the philosophy and re religion dichotomy, which there's another overlap, isn't there? Yes, there is. Um, and, you know, for, for large parts of history, um, philosophy and theology were one and the same. You were asking very many of the same questions and often using very many of the same thinkers. So a lot of um, a lot of Christian theology, for example, but also Arabic theology um, is uh, from Aristotle. Um, and, you know, they, they took up the, the concepts from Aristotle and, and ran with them. You know, it's kind of riffing on Aristotle, but with a lot more God. So you write a lot of different types of books. You write nonfiction, you write fiction, you write children's books. Are you, is one genre not enough for you? Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I am enthusiastic about all kinds of literature. I love to read and I always have. Why would I not write all kinds of literature. I started writing fiction and poetry relatively early. Um, and in fact, my first published works were poetry and then essays and then later philosophy books and then children's books. And these are all aspects of my life. So, you know, I'm a, I'm a father. And at the time when I was first writing my children's books, I would read picture books to my kids every night. So why would I not try to write it? I might fail. They might be bungling, but I'm going to give it a go. As it turns out, I've written six. Um, I really love uh, genre fiction, so I write fantasy and science fiction. And, yeah, they're written by a philosopher, um, but they're not academic works, uh, you know, to be read in a, a symposium. You know, they're for a general audience, and most of my work's for a general audience because I love to read and I want to offer people that same pleasure. So some of your books could be called popular philosophy, right? This is a genre that's, I guess it's become popular in the last few decades. Why do you think people want to read that? I'll just cite two of your most recent books, On Getting Off Sex and Philosophy and Philosophy in the Garden. Why do you think people who aren't philosophers are attracted by books that are clearly philosophy? It's not like you're sneaking the philosophy in, at least in the one that's philosophy in the garden where it's in the main title. Why do you think people are so attracted to that? I think the, the, the first thing is that people are curious. Uh, curious is, is partly just the pleasure of exercising your mind. And that is not necessarily something that is understood or rewarded uh, in all contexts. So um, it's not necessarily rewarded in your work environment. It may not be rewarded in your home life. Um, but my books are an attempt at sort of offering it, saying, you want to take some ideas for a walk, you want to challenge your mind, you want to second guess yourself and wonder about the things you took for granted, go ahead, play, enjoy. You know, this is this is not something that you have to do. You are not forced to do this. You don't have to grind. This is not part of a hustle. It's not an assignment in school. 
Yeah, this is just about, you know, sporting with ideas. Now, some of these ideas are serious. They concern ourselves, our place in the world, how we treat one another. But I think there is a basic pleasure you get from doing philosophy. And that's why I think it's really dangerous that we, when we divide books into, oh, well, there's books I read for pleasure, and then there's serious books. There is a pleasure in reading serious books. There is a pleasure in, in challenging your intellect or expanding the range of your experience. Okay, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk more about your books. Then we're going to talk about how you use Scrivener. Writing a book, screenplay, or even a long article is a juggling act. You need to find the right words and the right structure, keep track of research, and refer to notes. Tailor-made for long writing projects, Scrivener is the go-to app for writers of all types. Scrivener combines a typewriter, binder, and corkboard in a single app. A project outline makes it easy to get an overview of your work and flip between sections. Refer to research alongside your writing and just drag and drop to rearrange your work. Write in any order in sections as large or small as you like and let Scrivener stitch it all together when you're ready to share your words with the world. With Scrivener, you'll find everything you need to start writing and keep writing. Scrivener is available for Mac, Windows, iPad, and iPhone. Download the free trial from ScrivenerApp.com. Right now with Scrivener listeners can get a 20% discount with the coupon code PODCAST. That's ScrivenerApp.com. Okay, so I've read a couple of your books, and I particularly like Philosophy in the Garden. I like On Getting Off, Philosophy and Sex, but I think we won't address that too much because the language is not really for a family-friendly podcast. But I really like Philosophy in the Garden. You said before you like to read a lot, and it's obvious because each chapter in this book is about a writer and how they feel about gardens and plants. And a couple of them are philosophers, proper philosophers, Nietzsche and Rousseau, etc. But some of them are writers. And I, I've been, for 40 years, I've been a fan of Marcel Proust, and I've read his work several times, and I just love the chapter you wrote. And you've got a, a sentence in there that just, it, it's kind of a fractal of Proust's 3,000-page novel. You say he believed that tiny things and subtle details could be pathways to a richer, broader consciousness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's the chapter um, about bonsai. Um, Proust's bonsai. Why does Proust have this tiny plant next to his bed? And this was the kind of puzzle for me, the mystery, where I wanted to, first of all, I didn't know the answer when I started. And that's really important because I was driven by the same curiosity that I hope for my readers. Um, I wanted to know why he had a bonsai by his bed. And as you say, it ended up being that same theme in Proust's life, which is in these tiny little areas in these miniatures in these little half forgotten corners you pay attention and then suddenly a whole world arises it might be um you know it might be the madeline that he dipped in tea from from which you know all his memories sprang but it might also be a bonsai that for him who couldn't leave the house because he had asthma was a, a whole forest, you know, with a stream and ancient trees. Um, so the, the the bonsai allowed his mind to play, to elaborate. Um, and so that process, I essentially, um, I went through for a whole lot of things, because as you say, philosophers like Nietzsche and Voltaire, but also authors like Jane Austen, I wanted to know what was it that drew them to gardens in their lives, you know, whether they're sprawling estates um, or, or, or a single tiny bonsai. Um, because 
weirdly enough, philosophy has this ancient association with gardens, but um, philosophers have very rarely asked the question, well, why? What, what is a garden and what do they do? Do you have a garden yourself? Yes, we've had several, um, but we rent. And so there's always a sense that one garden will be yoinked away and we'll have to start again. Um, but one of the things I have committed to and one of the reasons I was really keen on writing that Proust chapter as well was, was that a lot of our plants have been in pots. And so we've, we've had to live with that impermanence but try to gesture at permanence a little bit. Yeah. I, I rent a house too, but I have a large garden, not an estate. And it's the first time I've had a large garden. And there is something that it kind of belongs to you and, and it's big enough to walk around. And there's there's a 150 foot pine tree and there's lilacs and there's flowers at different seasons. And it's really something. I mean, I grew up in New York City. So having a garden is, you know, very different. And it is true that it is a thinking space, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. And so the, the whole... The whole argument is really resting on the idea that gardens invite philosophy um, because they are literally and figuratively what we make of nature. Um, they are the natural world given new form, new color, um, new shapes. And in that, we see ourselves, we see how we make nature, we see the, the, the patterns that we introduce, but we also see nature there in front of us. Now, we're always transforming nature. That's part of what it is to be human. The microphone I'm using right now is nature transformed, essentially. But in a garden, we see that nature. It becomes a living symbol of the world we're in, combined with a living symbol of ourselves and our sense of, of form and color um, and, and smell. Um, and so it's extraordinarily powerful. If we're, if we're looking for visions of the cosmos or of humanity, we find them in the garden. We also see the cycle of the seasons. We see things as they grow slowly, as they flower, and then as they fade away. And, th and that, too, is a, a good sign of the impermanence of, of our lives. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think one of the, the sort of most powerful lessons that I was reminded of again and again while writing Philosophy in the Garden was the sense that gardens can draw us outside of ourselves, you know, that we're often preoccupied with our own problems, sometimes serious, but sometimes petty. And the garden is there just going about its business. It doesn't care. It has its cycles. You know, the camellia is always going to be there at the start of the season and it's always going to be dead by the end. Um, and, <laughs> you know, and there there is a, um, a distance from yourself psychologically that you can achieve by kind of meditating on that. You know, you can leave yourself behind just for a moment and, and attend to that flower and its cycles. So you also mentioned Japanese gardens in the book. Uh, I talk about Japanese gardens, uh, Ryoanji, uh, the Zen garden, um, but uh, that's in the context of Nikos Kazantzakis, the Greek author, visiting Ryoanji and encountering this Zen garden. Because that's a really special one where it's all just gravel and what, about 15 stones? Yes. And it's not about the plants. It's about the absence of the plants. Yes, and I think it's really important. I, I really wanted to include that chapter because as far as I'm concerned, even though a place like Rioanji is stone, you know, it's it's raked stones and boulders, maybe if you're lucky, some moss, maybe, um, it's still a garden. That is still nature humanized um, and given very fine form. Um, and for me, that was a challenge to say, well, can I make sense of this garden and can I make sense of how Kazantzakis felt 
when he was standing there in this stark, seemingly um, crude place. But no, on the contrary, he found it enlivening. He found it. A, he said, "If I could, um, if I could, I would shape my heart um, as a as a stone garden." Okay, let's talk about how you use Scrivener. You use Scrivener to write philosophy, fiction, children's book, poetry. <laughs> so Scrivener, to me, uh, I've been using it for I think five years, and I can't remember how I learned about it. It might have been on Twitter. Um, and then I went and watched a YouTube video of how Scrivener works. Um, and it's like the introductory video. And I just saw its modular character where you, you know, you write a, write a block of text and then you're happy with it, but then you can move it around. And that to me is the dream where instead of having this, um, Word document that just goes on and on and on with fiddly <laughs> little bookmarks that you have to click on and then it crashes because it's Word, because it's the industry standard but unstable. You've got this beautiful little essentially corkboard of things that you can move around as you see fit. And that's a, a wonderful aid to thought where you say, I wonder if this would work here. Actually, no, this idea is better down here and I can shift this passage. And it gives you a great architectural view of your own work. And so as soon as I saw that video, I'm like, I mean, that's it. I knew. And so I've all of my books um, since I suppose 2016 have been written on Scrivener. So it corresponds to the way you think of writing, because some people do think, you know, Jack Kerouac, he's got his scroll, he goes from beginning to end, and others think in that non-linear fashion. Yeah, look, if, if you're capable of writing, you know, on the, on the newspaper roll and just <laughs> churning it out, congratulations, but that's not me. Um, I like to be able to see these little units of thought and impression um, and feeling and then shift them around if need be, and then see see what that does to the structure of the work, to the structure of my thought, and how I'm feeling about how it all runs together. Um, and there's you know there's so many other functions, but it was that basic modularity that I loved. Um, where, for example, if I'm the the book I'm working on at the moment, um, I realised there are two themes that are too close together at the beginning of the book. Um, there's not enough diversity of concept and impression. So I can just shift one of those chapters till later and there's no harm done. Yeah. It, it's, it's just that easy. Do you outline or are you a pantser? Do, do you Australians use that term, pantser? Yeah, we do. Or do you we do. go on the um, seat of your pants? Yeah. Actually, that's a book by book, work by work thing. Um, with fiction, I'm somewhat more of a pantser, so I will outline often by in uh, by hand um, themes, ideas, characters, and so on. But when I'm working my way into a character or into a world, I will pants it. Um, with a nonfiction work, um, you know, when I'm writing philosophy, I will often have a structure of the whole book, what most of the chapters are about, some key ideas, what the basic philosophy is that underpins it all, but I will fill it in in the writing. Um, so uh, some some works I've just written were, you know, beginning to end with very little uh, structure. Other books that I had to write very quickly, like How to Think About Exercise, for example, was written in six months. 
And that whole book was planned, argument by argument, chapter by chapter. And then I just had to sit, sit down and bang it out as quickly as I possibly could. Yeah. We're talking in Skype on video. I see behind you a collection of swords. What do you do with those swords? So I do historical fencing. So if you think of Olympic fencing, um, it's what came before that when the people who did it wanted to keep themselves from dying rather than to win a sport. So it's, it's essentially a martial art um, with swords. And we use, you know, steel proper swords of the proper weight that they would have been historically. My main style is English broadsword from Shakespeare's time, um, but I also do uh, rapier um, and uh, longsword and so on. Is this a common Australian thing? <laughs> no, it's not. It's actually much bigger in uh, Europe, the UK and the United States than it is here. Um, but it is it is here. In fact, the, the guy who teaches me is sort of one of the big broadside guys in the world. He, he was one of the founders of this. Um, and he just happened to be in Hobart where I am, which is my good luck. So are these swords sharp or not? Um, one of them is sharp, um, and that's an 1822 infantry officer's sword. Um, so that's that's um, an antique. Uh, but the rest of them are blunt and have to be because yeah, yeah you do not want to practice uh, with sharp swords. And you see that in movies where people are like, "All right, show me your stuff," and no one in their right mind would do that. Even even in those days. They had blunts or they used, you know, wood or whatever. No one was about to practice with, yeah. you know, it's like um, practicing with live ammunition. It just doesn't make any sense. And you could say that no one on a movie set practices with live ammunition, but we had a recent case oh. where that was not the case, right? Yeah, exactly. And you see the result. So I live a few miles from Stratford-upon-Avon and I see the Royal Shakespeare Company and they do these very carefully choreographed sword fights. And you can see that one little slip, one little mistake and someone would lose a limb. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they, they tend to use slightly different swords because they, they have to look as real as possible and sometimes make sparks and look cool. Um, but they're not for sparring and you wouldn't, you wouldn't want to use them for sparring partly perhaps because of the weight or their design. But this, But again they're not going to be performing with real swords because they'll kill each other. That would be a problem for future performances, wouldn't it? I hear that. I mean, you know, the theatre world is, is a rich and diverse <laughs> place. Um, why do I do it? I do it because uh, I like the mental state that comes upon me when I'm sparring. Um, I, swords are just so cool. I mean, that's sort of a no-brainer. Um, <laughs> that, that is a kind of geeky thing there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but look at any, almost any huge popular culture franchise, and it involves swords. Yeah. I mean, Star Wars. Even, even lightsabers, yeah, they're swords. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they're essentially yeah, they're just they're just long swords, but they're well. Good. This is a kind of a carryover from the 19th century novel, from Dumas, the Three Musketeers, and all other types of things. Yeah, swords. I mean, I have written a bit on this. Um, swords have been emblematic weapons for many centuries, despite the fact that a lot of the time they weren't used in battle. You would use a spear, or you would use arrows. You know, you wanted you wanted um, artillery. You didn't want some dude with a sword. But swords are essentially personal symbols of valor that you can carry around on you. So your your sense of martial virtue becomes part of your dress, and that's a very powerful symbol. 
Yeah, but you don't wear these when you're walking around the streets of Hobart. Not, not because I don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> but essentially, that's that's part of the appeal of the sword is that they are they are beautiful symbols of of what we hope is the best in ourselves. Okay, what what is your next book about? My next book is about gestures. So taking these fleeting small things we do with our hands every day and showing how they arise from and contribute to these these much more vast worlds. Um, so if you think just to take uh, fencing as an example, you take a fencing salute that I'm doing in 21st century Australia, a salute that seems to have its origins in an art that was made for dueling in the 17th century. What is happening here? What do I carry along? How did a middle-class guy in Hobart end up doing an aristocratic salute? Um, so trying to explain these, how the forces of history and society and class and gender are all mashed together in these tiny little movements. That's really interesting. I look forward to that. Do you have a book that you've been reading recently that you'd recommend to our listeners? Okay, so I'm going to recommend two books, and I'll do so very briefly. Um, Stoner by John Williams, which is not only a magnificent portrait of university life, but it's a magnificent portrait of life and its disappointment and the strange nobility of enduring through these. And I'm also going to recommend uh, the uh, maritime adventure books of Patrick O'Brien. So he wrote Master and Commander, um, of which the, the famous um, film was based. I've just finished the complete Aubrey Maturin novels, and I don't think a novel or certainly a series of novels has given me so much joy. They are a, a, a portrait of the world, uh, whether it's music, philosophy, mathematics, naval warfare, Napoleon, politics. Um, and swords. And swords, too. Thank you so much, Kirk. Um, <laughs> just, they're, they're just magnificent stuff. Okay, Damon Young, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. If you like the podcast, please follow it in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. To learn more about Scrivener, go to ScrivenerApp.com. Join us next month for another conversation on Right Now with Scrivener. <laughs>